A reading from 2 Samuel. The king, David, ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to you do to do you harm be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, who would I had died instead of you? O oh, Absalom, my son, my son, the word of the Lord. Readings on the 12th Sunday after Pentecost, Psalm 130. We will read responsibly by the half verse as indicated by the asterisk. Out of the depths have I called to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears consider well the voice of supplication. If you, Lord, were to note what is done amiss, O Lord, who could stand us? For there is forgiveness with you, I wait for you, O Lord, my soul waits for you. My soul waits for the Lord more than centuries for the morning. O Israel, wait for the Lord. There is plenteous redemption with the Lord. reading from Ephesians. Putting away falsehood, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no talk, evil talk come out of our mouths, and that only what is useful for building up, as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then the Judeans began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. That one has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we're now in week three out of five weeks of hearing that Christ is the bread of life. <laughs> so we, we get five weeks to contemplate this. You might have thought we were done week one, but there will be two more. I just want to let you know. Um, part of this can get easily lost on us, I think, because today, you know, and it is this sort of popular thing going on to be gluten-free and to look at bread as you know, an optional sidebar on our plate, uh, something that accentuates a meal. Uh, it might be helpful to hear, though, that particularly here in the Galilee at this time, 90% of your daily nutrition came from bread. 90%. So the average person consumed a two to two and a half pound loaf of bread a day. Maybe you're wondering, where do the other 10% of their nutrition come from? Wine. Wine and perhaps a little bit of pomegranates or olive oil, but let's not think that these people were growing Brussels sprouts or sweet potatoes or anything else that you know, now fills your diet. There, there was no Adkins diet. There was only the bread of life diet, let me tell you. <laughs> the bread of life. It took a woman on average five and a half hours to make the daily bread for each person in her family. Five and a half hours. That is, by the way, what is called the daily grind. Five and a half hours to grind into coarse flour, wheat, and if you were poor, barley, and make that into two and a half pound loaf for each person in your family. So when Jesus says, hey, I'm the bread of life, he's not saying I'm the dinner roll you might skip over. He's saying I'm 90% of your daily nutritional value. And the other 10%, of course, is the wine. This is not an option. This is the staff of life, is what Jesus is saying. With all that in mind, it's very tempting, I think, to hear that the crowd is frankly tired of the daily grind. 
and would really like for Jesus to just feed them every day so that they no longer have to do the tedious, painful work that is so tedious and so normal and so boring in its normalcy. Very possible to hear that the crowd would just like to not have to provide for themselves any longer. That is why they are following Jesus, hoping that they will simply feed them and they can escape having to do the same bit day after day. That could be true. I don't think it is, although I have to say um, there are many moments in my daily life where that is appealing to me. <laughs> it would be so nice if I did not have to brush my teeth again today and tomorrow. Actually, toothbrushing doesn't bother me. It's like the laundry and emptying the dishwasher again and again and again. And you know, when you are the only person cooking for your family, sometimes the satisfaction of a fine meal evaporates when you think, tomorrow I will have to do it again. And will anyone care? I don't know. <laughs> I want to stop on that point, though, and say, you know, it's tempting, I think, to hear this bread of life business as God providing sustenance and as looking for adventure instead of that same daily grind. And I think we are offered this alternative to pause and think that it is precisely in that daily grind that God has made manifest in our lives. When I think of my sheroes and heroes of faith, I will tell you it is people who showed up every single day prepared even for the mundane lesson plans as teachers who made breakfast after breakfast after breakfast, who showed up. Those are the people who allowed the platform of the adventures that were to happen. Those were the people who modeled not extreme faith, but being extremely faithful. And I do think there is something in our passage today that says the world needs people to be extremely faithful in even the smallest bits. Think of your teachers, your family members, your friends, the people who simply showed up day after day after day after day with poise. And for me, those are the mentors who really carried me through. There were these people in my life who would do these dramatic and wonderful things. They would do flash in a pan sort of things, you know, and I sure do remember them. But it was the ones who were faithful day after day after day after day that bore me through school, young adulthood, who were there. Well, that's the kind of disciple, I think, that Jesus invites us to be, ones who are extremely faithful day after day after day. I don't think the crowd is about that. <laughs> I just spent that much time on that, and I don't think that's what it's about. I think instead the crowd is really trying to go back and say, hey, um, you know, God fed us in the wilderness, God sustained us, and you know the wilderness was really all about being released from captivity. The whole reason they were there in the desert is because God was leading them from slavery in Egypt into a promised land. And I think the people in this story are, are sort of there to say, hey, you know, um, when is God going to deliver us from the slavery we find ourselves in now? The truth is pharaohs don't just disappear, there are many pharaohs. There are pharaohs in our own day. Pharaohs of things 
that divide us from God, whether they be sexism or racism, etc. Those pharaohs still exist. We find them in every generation anew. Sometimes we find them in ourselves in surprising ways. People are saying, when will you lead us, Jesus, out of this bondage and isolation? When will God guide us to a new place? And when and how will God nourish us? We want to be delivered. They find themselves in this story about manna in which God provided them nutrition. Notice that they grumble about Jesus. They say, where's the manna? <laughs> if you know your Hebrew Bible, the whole time the ancestors got manna, they grumbled about it. <laughs> they were never happy with that stuff. When God gave them bread from heaven, well, they wanted something else. They wanted quail. So God gave them quail and they grumbled about that too. And when they got something else, they grumbled about that. Have you ever grumbled against God for the provisions you get? Have you ever thought, God, I wish I had blank? And then when blank came, you wished you had blankety blank? <laughs> I had a dear friend uh, who had this tragic car accident and her knee was absolutely crushed. She went to the doctor for two or three years complaining about the pain in the knee. And one day the doctor said, listen, when I fix your knee, what are you gonna whine about next? <laughs> it was sort of this interesting thing. I wonder if that isn't part of what's happening here. And Jesus says something really interesting, which is essentially, you know, I've not really come to provide for your physical needs day after day after day after day. I've not come to give you something that you can just consume. Rather, I'm going to do something different. I want you to find nourishment not just in the bread I've given you to eat and consume. I want you to find nourishment in me, in my teaching, in our relationship. I want you to find nourishment that goes deeper than what you're looking for. You're looking to fill your stomach so that you can travel. I want to strengthen your spirit for the entire journey. In fact, maybe Jesus is saying, I'd like to ch change the trajectory of where you think your journey is going, and you'll find the nourishment for that change in me. No wonder that people are offended when they hear that and say, hey, we know where you're from. We know your dad, he's the wood guy, and we know your mom. So how can you say to us, that you would offer us spiritual nourishment for our journey. How can you say to us our journey needs to have a different trajectory? And Jesus offers this really important corrective, I think, for us on our own faith journey. He says, I'm the bread of life and you'll find life in me now. And I will tell you, having grown up with a different mindset, I sure thought that life was, frankly, supposed to be mostly miserable and we get our heavenly reward when we die and go to heaven. But Jesus is sort of saying, I think, today, you can have nourishment in God's presence today, and if you have to wait until you die, that's your fault. God would rather you have it now and later. And maybe the thing that's getting in the way of us having it now is us. I'd rather not be that responsible, but maybe Jesus is saying, I might be responsible. 
There's one other thing about this passage that's really interesting. You know, Greek can't really do this, but Greek is trying. John is trying in Greek to do something really special here. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And those words, I am, in Greek, are trying to recall what God said to Moses on Mount Horeb. Moses said, God, when the people in Egypt say that you're supposed to let them out and deliver them, they're going to ask what your name is and what am I going to tell them? And remember, God says in Hebrew, which means I am who I am. <laughs> Can you imagine the incredulity of the people when they say, what's God's name? And Moses says, we're waiting. Go ahead and say it. We just hear you breathing. Could you tell us God's name, please? <laughs> right? That's how that went. In, in Greek, Jesus says, bread of life. That there is this way of breathing in God's presence and spirit. There's this way of intoning God's name that is nourishment for the journey. And that when we can find that nourishment for our spirit and our community and with one another, we have in fact found God present in our community. I don't know that John is talking about the Eucharist, but I can't help but think that this is why we come here every week, not just for the liturgy of the word, we're doing that right now, but for the liturgy of the sacrament in which we find God's presence in the smallest and most mundane of bread. I mean, come on, what we eat, whether it's that flat wafer or the bread that we make doesn't really taste like ambrosia, does it? It tastes kind of like regular old bread, and sometimes worse. <laughs> While our wine has improved dramatically, friends, I'm pretty sure you know better wine at home. You don't come for the fare, you come for the nourishment that is not only in it, but in how we receive it. And I wonder then if that isn't what Paul is trying to do for us today, trying to say that as we gather for the bread of life and the wine of life at the table of the Lord, there are certain things that might help the way we gather. We call those manners. <laughs> and I wonder if Paul isn't trying to say as we find ourselves welcome to God's table for nourishment on our journey, in fact, nourishment that even offers to shift the way that we travel and the goals that we set, that there are some manners that sure would help us at the table and to help other people to know that they're included at the table. Manners like, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful to building others up. God's already said, I'm going to give you the nourishment you need, but don't you see, as we sit at the table, the way we conduct ourselves informs other people whether or not they're welcome at the table. The way that we conduct ourselves represents God's invitation to that nourishment. And sure enough, if we sit at the table and whisper to each other about what we don't like, I cannot believe she wore that sweater to church. It is so red. I cannot believe, I can't believe, I can't believe he did this, she did that. We all know those manners don't work at our own table. <laughs> we all know that they put people off. It's no different at God's table. 
When we don't follow our manners, don't you see, Paul says, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Not because God's disappointed in us, no, 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 no. We grieve the Holy Spirit precisely because the Holy Spirit would like us to be welcoming agents. And the Holy Spirit is grieved that our welcome so often turns to distancing other people. You can come to God's table when you blank instead of, come on, come on and be nourished with me. I suppose this reading about David, you know, the lectionary presumes you know this whole story. This is the hard thing about being an Episcopalian. Let me tell you the good thing about being a Southern Baptist. I know the whole story. I learned it on a flannel board. There were wonderful pictures of Absalom getting his head stuck in a tree and Joab stabbing him in the heart with a lance. Those were beautiful pictures on the flannel board. Oh, by the way, those are terrible pictures. But we had them. I know that story well. We've skipped several chapters. You know, we heard two weeks ago how about how David raped this woman named Bathsheba. We heard about that. And uh, then what we missed was that one of David's children did that to another one of David's children, raped his sister. Uh, we missed that David did nothing. Well, maybe he didn't feel like he had the moral footing to do anything. He did the same thing himself. We hear about how Absalom killed his brother to get revenge. And David did Nothing. We hear about how David just really couldn't do much. Of course, it's really easy to have a competition for worst parent of the year. <laughs> I used to do this with my friends in high school. My parents are worse than yours. And they would say, oh yeah? Well, at least your parents didn't blank. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Today, though, is this point, right, where we see, despite all of David's feelings, we see this utter pathos for a father who, despite his poor parenting at moments, of course, would give his own life for his sons, of course. Much to the chagrin of his army officers, uh, much to the disappointment of the people who serve him, David says, this person has started a rebellion against me. I'm going to ask you to fight in that rebellion, but don't hurt him. <laughs> the people say, you are crazy. You are crazy. Nobody will fight for you if you would forgive a traitor. And William Faulkner, right, used this lament to title one of his books, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Later we'll find the kind of nourishment David got to sustain him in his life. But don't you see, David is precisely the person who needs to be nourished at God's table. And the question is, would our manners invite him? Or would we say, you're a terrible father and you have nothing to do at God's table? I think he's a terrible father. <laughs> I probably would keep him from God's table. That's something for me to meditate on. Here's this moment we get to see in David's interior life that we don't always get to see in our own enemies and the people we judge, 
a moment in which David says, I would give my life for my son. I would trade my place for his. I would be the one caught in the tree by my neck and stabbed in the heart if I could. It gives us pause, I think, to have compassion for our enemies who even doing their worst are probably doing the best they know how to do. Whether those people be in our family or in our workplace, in our parish or in the world, I wonder if this still isn't about the way in which we conduct ourselves being invitation to the table of the Lord, where God would be 90% of our nourishment for a journey we still embark on, and where, frankly, if we could change our manners, God might change the trajectory of our faith journey to take us places we never thought we could arrive at in this life, places that would bring us surprising joy. I don't know if you need some spiritual etiquette. <laughs> I know I do. And I sure pray that as we meditate this week, God would compel us, that God would nourish us, and that we might, in fact, join God in nourishing a world desperately in need of new trajectories. <laughs>